Hey, everybody. Welcome to Defy. This is a podcast about stories because everyone has a story to tell. We're all about sharing stories of women and non-binary individuals and how they have defined the odds, persevered through incredible circumstances, and transformed their lives. Is this a show about perfection? No, because it doesn't exist. Is this a show full of empty self-help quotes for you to put on your Instagram? No, that is not our style. This is a show about breaking the rules, creating your own path, and being your true self. Because remember, well-behaved women rarely make history. Non-binary folks excel at breaking models. So come on, let's get out there and defy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Defy. I'm Sarah Troutman. And just so you know, and this might come as a shock to you, Megan, who, by the way, is with me. She's my guest today. (laughs) This is our last episode of season one. Um, Why are we closing out this season of the podcast? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, I am tired. No way. I love doing this podcast, um, but I think for anyone that that listens to it, and I've mentioned this before, and for anyone that's been a guest, we do. I do a lot of research. We do pre-planning calls. This is something that takes a lot of effort and is such a labor of love. But man, we have you know I've worked. This is our nineteenth episode, not including two um, live episodes. So we have churned out over twenty episodes in the last four months. And your girl, meaning me, Sarah, needs a break. But also. What we're going to do in season two of Defy is going to be a slightly different focus. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to make you wait so you can be so excited and just have so much anticipation. But this is, you know, I couldn't think of a better way to close out season one than with my homegirl, Megan Miller. Megan, what's up? Hey, just hanging out at the beach. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So let's, let's paint this picture. I am in my office in Phoenix, Arizona. So it's not like I'm living a horrible life. It's 72 degrees outside. Like, it's great. But Megan is on spring break with her son, Taylor. Where are you guys on spring break right now? We're in Longboat Key. In, in Longboat Florida. Key in mm-hmm. Florida. Well, Megan, so Megan lives in Florida. Yeah. So Megan lives in Florida. So this is not like, she, you know, she's, you know, traveling to some like new fantastic place. She does live in Florida already. But what, can you just describe what are some of the activities that you and Taylor did together today? Well, pretty much Monday – Tuesday and Wednesday, and pro- and the, for the rest of the week, we wake up. I get to go for a run. He kind of hangs out, and then we go to the pool for a little bit, and then we go out on the beach. And I get to sit in a chair while he plays in the sand and builds the Titanic mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's really into the Titanic right now. So, yeah. And then I, I mean, it's a big ship that sank. That's a good story. I, I can see why a five-year-old yeah. would be totally down with that. And he just came in the room. Oh, I heard him in the background. What did you just say? Okay. Yes. I was talking about the Titanic. I'm here by myself with him now. So he gets to come in. Okay. Oh, and so Taylor's like, you said Titanic. Yeah. It's like the magic word. Like I I need to be involved. Does he want to come on the podcast too? Because he can. There's a green crayon on your plate. Oh. Yeah. Don't eat the crayons. Go eat the pizza. Don't eat the the crayons. Shut the door, please. 
Oh my gosh, I can hear his sweet little voice. Yeah, that's like like that's how you know you're momming so hard. We're talking about the Titanic, and also just don't eat crayons. Don't eat the green crayon or any crayon. But make let's focus on the fruit. And I ordered pizza for dinner to try to help keep him out of our interview. Clearly Mm -hmm. didn't work (laughs) because I mentioned the Titanic, and you know you're right. I mean, he's like, hello, this is like my preferred thing. (laughs) So a little more context. So Megan, you're a behavior analyst like me. And we have, you know, it's so funny, like interviewing you for this podcast today, because like, this is what people might not believe. You and I have done how many different like online collaborations in the last year? I don't even remember how many. I know. It's at this point. Yeah. And we're about to do another one. So um, Megan and her partner, Jen, run the Do Better Collective. And this is a membership organization for behavior analysts. Obviously, me and my partner, Carol, run Defy Community, and we're having a joint collaborative conference on April 23rd called Oh Hey BCBAs. And we have a remarkable lineup of speakers that are going to be talking about topics that you would not have necessarily been exposed to in graduate school or maybe even by your employer. We're going to be talking about sex education across the lifespan with Warner Leland, who was my podcast guest two weeks ago. We're going to be talking about teaching consent skills to preschool students with Dr. Marley Chabelle, who has been an incredible like early member in Defy and, and Do Better. We're going to be talking um, with Cami and Danielle, who both are on the Defy team um, and are close friends of mine in terms of how we've prioritized diversity, equity, and inclusion in and infused it into the structure of our organization. We are also going to be having uh, Zara Hajiamoseni and Mika McCannon talking about how to become an effective field supervisor. And Megan and I are going to be talking about strategies to help you slay your professional life um, using behavior analysis based on our own experiences. And so part of us talking today, Megan, is also, I think, going to give us a little bit of uh, inspiration for our presentation at our YoPros or uh, Oh Hey BCBAs, excuse me, <laughs> conference on April 23rd. And what you and I have talked about so much, because you and I are both people that are, for better or for worse, in the public eye a lot in the type of work that we do. We are both um, female leaders. We both have strong opinions and we have uh, really worked to to find our voice. And sometimes when you find your voice, uh, you also find a lot of criticism of that voice. And so what I wanted to do today is to give you the opportunity to just kind of talk about who you are. Um, how you got here, kind of what you're all about, and then we can have a little more, you know, of our like typical Megan Sarah discussion afterwards. But I just wanted to really allow people to like get to know like Megan. Uh, and so you decided to start at graduate school at Florida State University. So do you want to talk about your experience there? And then we'll we'll kind of like go uh, systematically um, and uh, – in order in terms of, you know, kind of your professional experiences. Sounds good. So, yeah, I mean, we could obviously go way back further, but I thought this was the most relevant. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I went to graduate school at Florida State University, and I actually went to the Panama City campus, which was awesome because it's on the Gulf of Mexico, and that's where I wanted to be. Uh, But so I went there. I had been working with autism in Ohio, and I knew I wanted to study behavior analysis, but it was because of autism. And 
I was fortunate that my professors like recognized the strong grasp of the science that I had. And I will say when I first got there, I was a little intimidated because one of my, um, one of my classmates came from Western Michigan and another one mm-hmm. came from UMass Lowell and she had, she had been at, um, neck. So mm-hmm. they both had, which like, is the new England center for children. We all have to make yes. sure because we have a lot of non-behavior <laughs> yeah. analytic listeners. So we have to define everything here, Megan. Right. So, Western uh, Michigan and then UMass Lowell are strong behavior analyst um, undergraduate programs. Yes. So they both like knew all these things. And I was like, oh my gosh, I know none of this stuff. Like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Uh, I just know autism or whatever. But thankfully, for whatever reason, I was able to grasp things pretty quickly. And what was interesting in graduate school is I was constantly reminded that I was there to learn behavior analysis. And it was not just an autism program. Mm -hmm. So that was helpful because I was truly learning the science and how to apply it, you know, in any realm. But it also dissuaded me from getting more drawn into like the autism expert route. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I kind of wonder about that because I see a lot of people who are from varying backgrounds that went more in that route and, and like where things have gone for them. And it's more where I kind of wish I was sometimes, but Mm -hmm. I definitely appreciate, you know, the grasp I have on the science and the ability I have to not just use it in autism service delivery, but also just everyday life and interaction with um, a variety of different types of situations. So Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that was kind of one of the things that was kind of came up for me when we talked about this podcast and recording there seemed to be even back then in graduate school, like this competing force between my desire to serve autistics and, and create a world uh, and people, um, meaning people like us, not the, not the people we're serving, but like um, whether it's behavior analysts or teachers or parents or whoever, but like creating a situation where we can be accepting and loving of like a lot of different types of people. Um, that mm-hmm. kind of seemed to compete a bit with like behavior analysis uh, because mm-hmm. it, it, uh, in the behavior analysis side of things, they were there was like this worry that it would be like watered down if I focused too much on autism. And then on like mm-hmm. the autism side of things, there was like pushes and pulls on, you know, behavior analysis, maybe not necessarily being my friends that I would make that were autistic were were not exactly trusting of me when they first met me because of the the misconceptions and things that they had heard about behavior analysis. So it was like, how do we <laughs> value both of these things and benefit the human being served, you know? And that so that started all the way mm-hmm. back in grad school for me. So that was too long ago at this point, um, I think like 15 years ago. So mm-hmm. 16, dang, why? <laughs> I know. Why is it so I long? know literally, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, Megan, I started graduate school in a different century. No. I mean, li- yeah. A different century. This is a fact and like, oh my gosh. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about you. So, but then you moved to North Carolina. I had a brief stint in North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. So when I um, first graduated from FSU, I wanted to be closer to my parents and they lived in North Carolina. And at the time there weren't a whole lot of options for mm-hmm. for jobs there. So there, the company that I was, that I signed on with, they were definitely better than your average company, but like my knowledge base conflicted with theirs. There was, um, they were much more traditional kind of like discrete trial focused. And 
Mm-hmm. I was not. <laughs> I was more, you know, it, at this time it was 2007 and I was more, we, at Florida State, we focused a lot on verbal behavior and like the things that Carbone mm-hmm. and P- Partington and Sunberg were doing. And the company wasn't familiar with any of those things, like motivating operations, mm-hmm. none of it. So okay. thankfully I worked mostly independently, but there was just a lot of conflict with our style of uh, intervention. And I was living in Fayetteville and I don't know if you know anything about Fayetteville, but it is like basically I don't. it's strip clubs and pawn shops pretty much. It's Ooh. like a huge military. So where did you go the most, the strip club or the pawn <laughs> shop? Like what was your I favorite? I went to neither of those, but I did one time I did try to go to a, a place that was clearly geared towards men. And when I tried to go in with my two guy friends, they were like, no, you're not allowed in here. <laughs> So I sent oh. them in. I was like, I need to know what's in there now. Like, why am I not allowed in there? No. But basically they said as soon as they walked in, like ladies just, they like cut, like just ran to them and they were like, let me get money out of your bank and I will do all the things for you. It was very interesting. But yeah, it was mm. a, a unique place. Um, so I could not get out of there fast enough. Everyone I met was like, oh, which branch of the military are you in? And I was like, I'm not in the military and they're like, oh, you're here voluntarily. Why? Why are you, why would anyone come here voluntarily? (laughs) So, um, but I was only, you know, an hour, hour and a half from my parents. So that was nice. Um, Mm. But anyway, so because it was so horrible, there was a job opening back at FSU in Panama City. So I moved back there to be the clinical coordinator. And I definitely had a huge opportunity to find my voice locally there because I was really working on my own. I, the mm-hmm. program itself had kind of um, decreased. They, they had the person that was in charge before me really tried to size things down and make it solely for early intervention. But in the community where we lived in Panama City, that's just, that wasn't feasible at that time. Like there wasn't enough, this a small community. There weren't enough people mm-hmm. seeking out behavior analytic services to try to just cater to that age group. Okay. So I, um, I had to figure it out and I will never forget going in my, I think like first week or two meeting with the Dean of FSU. And he was like, here's your budget. You are in the red by the end of the year. You need to be in the green, figure it out. And I was like, I don't know You're like, what's a budget. A budget. <laughs> like, <laughs> thankfully I took a couple of accounting courses in undergrad, but I was just like, are you kidding me right now? Like, this is where we're at. Like this, like this is not okay. Um, so I, you know, quickly like geared up and I really, I was essentially forced to use my voice and like, just be assertive because we had a lot of shit <laughs> that needed to get mm-hmm. done to like get more clients in there and all of that kind of stuff. So But it was a perfect opportunity because I was essentially on my own to serve these families and like grow the graduate students at FSU and run a company. But when I had questions or like didn't know what to do, there were a variety of people to support me from like the FSU accountant to, Mm -hmm. you know, my my professors who had mentored me at FSU, like Dr. Bailey and Dr. Murphy, um, as well as just some like local people that had been providing services as well. So it was a really supportive situation and I was able to, because the community is so small, I was able to do a lot of outreach and like free presentations. FSU's Panama City campus is so great because you could just like sign up to rent out a room anytime you wanted. So I could do like once a month, do a presentation for the community on behavior analysis and like teach people in the area 
more about what we were doing and help disseminate our science. So it was a really great opportunity. And having been a student there just a few years, I mean, a year prior, not even six months prior, I knew the things that were going really well and I knew the things that needed to change. So it was a really Mm -hmm. unique opportunity. And then you moved to Virginia. How was it? What, yeah, what precipitated, (laughs) what precipitated that move? Mm. I met a guy. Mm. Yeah. So the the age old story, (laughs) I met a guy. So um, I met Blake and we met in Panama City and he was getting stationed in Virginia. And I, I will never forget. It was like the worst thing ever quitting my job at FSU. I was like in tears. We had a job fair and I had to stand by the booth and nobody knew I was leaving yet. And I just like went in the bathroom and cried because I was just so sad Mm -hmm. about leaving. It was my perfect, like most favorite job. I didn't get paid Mm -hmm. very much, (laughs) but it was just like, I just absolutely loved it and adored what we were doing there. So, um, but when I was moving to Virginia, I was looking at the different options and it was kind of similar to North Carolina. There were only a few different companies to work for. And I was like, oh, done this before. It did not work out well. I cannot do this again. So I was basically forced again to do my own thing. So thankfully I had the experience from FSU in terms mm-hmm. of having like policies and procedures and like operational, yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff. But I didn't want to be a business person. Like I was just like, Oh, I don't want to do this, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I couldn't work somewhere that didn't allow me to, to do the things I knew needed to happen and provide the most effective services and use the skills that I had built from both going to Florida State and working there as a clinical coordinator. So I really just planned to be on my own, like sole, that's it, just me. Uh, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not really sure at this point, but once I arrived there, and uh, I'll never forget this part either. I don't think we've talked about this yet, but like when I, so I started, it was November of 2009. I thankfully had a friend who came up with the name of my company, Navigation mm-hmm. Behavioral Consulting. She came up with the the slogan too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my brother was like really into like social media and marketing and all that kind of stuff. So he helped me with like my website and logo and all this stuff. So I started like marketing my services in November, knowing I wouldn't be there until January. And when we moved there in January, I had one client mm-hmm. and I was like, I had saved up money from being at FSU and working my second job at like an early intervention place and my third job working at Target. Talk about the side hustles. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like but Target is life. Things. And also then you get a discount. So right. I fully support this. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was, you know, so I had the one client, um, TRICARE, not surprisingly, was giving me the runaround in terms of mm-hmm. getting approved for things and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember like being in tears like numerous days because it was like, I'm never going to, I'm never going to get any clients. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what's going on. Like, I know how to be a behavior analyst and improve the lives of these folks, but I I don't know any of this other stuff. Right. But then, so that was January. And by March, I had a wait list. I had 10 clients because I, again, I connected with a local community and I went and did presentations for the Autism Society and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So it was pretty quickly that I I got a wait list. And I was thankfully had a friend there, Samantha, who had been living there for about a year and had been working in the schools and she was a behavior analyst too. So she had a couple, well, one, she had one person who she had been working with that basically begged me to contract with her. 
And then Mm -hmm. around the same time, I had two other people reach out and ask me to contract with them and supervise them. One was a BCABA and another one was doing her field work. And this was before BCABAs had to be supervised. Mm-hmm. So they, but they were looking at, you know, working at different companies and couldn't find anywhere that were providing like the type of supervision that they wanted. And they wanted to like learn from me and get better supervision and mentorship. So I reluctantly added them on again, this was back like 2009, 2010, when like contractors was pretty easy to do because there wasn't a whole lot of oversight in the field. There was, it was pretty right. much like, here's your clients go right. Figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, in the way that insurance was running at the time, there was no, like, this is the things you have to do. There was no requirement to mm-hmm. have employees. So within just like a year or so we had, we grew from just me to 30 people. Um, and then I also added on a business partner as well as another behavior analyst who was kind of doing the same thing. We both had like a few people working with us and we were contacting each other on like a daily basis, asking each other questions. So eventually I was just like, should we just do this together because it seems silly that we're like reinventing the wheel. And so you were saying that both in Florida and Virginia, you always connected with a local community to disseminate behavior analysis and that Florida State had really instilled in you and encouraged this by training you on public speaking and presenting at conferences and that you enjoyed this. um, And you were able to do this, you know, create some like online course options with low tech and and no budget. You said this was around 2011. Yeah. So um, when I was in Virginia, I was just running into these issues. I actually did a presentation at FABA, the Florida Association Mm -hmm. for Behavior Analysis Mm -hmm. in 2011 called Leaving the Florida Bubble. Mm -hmm. What moving to Virginia taught me about behavior analysis because in Florida at that time, like nobody knew what behavior analysis was like outside of our lovely state where the certification started. They all just thought it was like as amazing and effective and ethical as we experienced there. And now even in Florida, it's not that case. But then people thought I was like making stuff up when I was trying to explain to them what I saw when I moved to Virginia. They were like, no, no, that's not happening. And I was like, it is. (laughs) Like, trust me. Yeah. So when I, I like experienced the things, like there was a person that was a BCABA and didn't even know what a preference assessment was. Mm-hmm. Like, Which for those of you that don't know is like some basic stuff. <laughs> yeah, basic like, how stuff. did you get certified? Like that's something you learn in like one of your first classes. Like what? So um, anyway, I was basically just kind of contacted this whole, it was basically like a BCBA puppy mill, puppy mill mm-hmm. um, situation in Virginia. So, um, so I wanted to get, it was the first course I did was called ethics and misconceptions of behavior analysis. And that was my mm-hmm. low tech 2011 thing. It was like two hours long. I put it on our website, I think initially for free and then for like 10 bucks because I was yeah. just like, people need to know this stuff. This is not okay. That like our field is growing so rapidly and people don't know some of the basics of our science. Mm-hmm. And you're like, did, little did we know. <laughs> we thought it was growing rapidly back then. I know. <laughs> it's been growing even faster. Yeah. No. I know. Yep. So you also said that you had, you know, you were involved on some level with the licensure for behavior analysts in, in Virginia. And that was something you said, you're like, I forgot how involved I was here, but this was another one where very few people were acting. And so you really were forced and to get involved in and have a voice, um, to just say, Hey, we need to be our own, you know, distinct profession. We need to practice or protect our, our right to practice. But then you went to, to graduate school at Ohio state. And so like, let's do a sidebar. 
If anyone ever had any question about where Megan's allegiance lies <laughs> in NCAA football, uh, I'd like to clear that up, that you are deeply committed to OHIO. Yes. Oh, so committed, in fact, that you attend an annual cruise. And last year during COVID, this was like the heartbreaking reality for you that the cruise was canceled. Hey, we had and it, but we we did have it in 2020. Or the virtual – oh, no, 20, but then it was – oh, right, because was it in January? It was in the end of February, so it was like totally okay, – when and everything was canceled. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so the cruise for this year is not until the summer, right? Yeah, so they changed like, it to a land okay. cruise. In June. So if anybody oh, wants land. to come hang out with a bunch of Buckeyes in Fort Lauderdale in June, that's where we'll be. <laughs> and to add a little salt uh, to Megan's game, just for you all, all of you guys to know, my father went to the University of Michigan and the Wolverines <laughs> and the Buckeyes are like one of the best rivalries in the Big Ten. Yeah. Um, and this is like, you, there's been a whole documentary that HBO made. It's actually a great documentary if anyone ever wants mm -hmm. to watch it. It's awesome. But this, you know, this, you know, rivalry breaks families apart, depending <laughs> on if you are a Buckeye or Wolverine fam. You know, like it tears at the very fabric of connectedness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if Sarah had told me that before I like really knew her, we might not even know each other. We might not right be now. friends. <laughs> So, so you go to grad school at Ohio State. You're further along in your career than your classmates. Um, and, you know, how did that impact kind of your experience? Yeah. So it was kind of interesting because like at the time, so this was 2012 to 2015, I had my company. Again, we had like over 30 employees at that time and like over 100 clients. I shifted, obviously, my, I didn't have any clients. Well, I had a couple of like remote situations that I was still doing, but, um, mm -hmm. I was mostly doing like our billing and like paperwork kind of stuff. And, yeah. um, so I was able to do both, but like a lot of, I don't know, I'm sure a lot of it was me, but there was, there seemed to be this like in graduate school, I guess part of the big draw is that your advisors and like the other professors at the university help connect you with people. But I already like yeah. knew a lot of the people because I had been mm. in this. I, I mean, granted, it had only been five years, but I had already. But you'd already been at Florida State. You'd already been in Virginia. Yeah, yeah, I'd already like done a lot of the things. I, you know, I knew Sunberg. I knew Mary Barbera. I knew um, Steve Ward. Like all the people that at conferences they might want to like introduce someone to. Like I already like knew who everyone was, so mm -hmm. there wasn't um, this like I guess need on my end to to follow my advisors in that way or like have them set me up with anything or connect me with things. Um, mm -hmm. But then I got like shit for it. <laughs> so like I'll never forget like the first ABAI I went to. I was presenting like five or six different talks. I had all this stuff going on. I was never around the Ohio State people because I was busy conferencing mm -hmm. and doing conferencing things. And then like everyone was like really mean to me about it. Like where have you been this whole time? Why aren't you with us? And I was like, you know, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I have a career. Mm. Like I don't know. I didn't know that I was supposed to be doing these things. There was a lot of like unspoken expectations around like what you would do as a PhD grad student. And I just don't do well picking up on those things, whether it's in grad school or like socially, I just don't, I need to be explicitly told like, this is what you're supposed to be doing right now. Or I'm out there mm -hmm. breaking the mold and pissing people off, I guess. So whatever. Um, <laughs> But anyway, so 
I didn't really like get, I guess my, my grad experience wasn't really the same as what most people would have. Oh, and TRICARE decided to make a big mess of things during that time as well. So I had to like, I remember channel the advocacy stuff I had done in Virginia. And we, we actually created a thing called the behavior analysis advocacy network. And we were trying to really work. I went to the Capitol a few times and I, like my focus was still really on service provision and how to help people access services. So I wasn't really doing the the grad school things (laughs) that Mm -hmm. people would typically be doing. And then um, I kind of realized after the fact that like, I probably missed out on a few things that were important, but nobody ever really, and not that they had to, but nobody ever really like sat me down and said like, you need to be doing these things. You know, I was so focused on my career that I had already started before I went to school that I didn't really ever dive into the grad school stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when did you graduate with your PhD? In what year? 2015. Okay. Oh my gosh. So this is almost six years ago. Yeah. And so you said that you haven't taken a traditional PhD route. And when there are things happening that don't seem to be in the best interest of those that we serve, that you're going to say something, whether it's to, to someone's face or, or online, and that it's been interesting to see how people with less practitioner experience and knowledge on problem solving and creating uh, highly individualized and humane interventions are regularly invited to present at conferences solely based on their academic positions and or publications. And this is definitely something that I've noticed as well within like our specific field of behavior analysis. And Pat Fryman actually, you know, uh, wrote a really interesting article about this in terms of like all my heroes are cowboys. And and I love this article and really kind of talking about like, like, hey, if you want to learn how to do something, don't you think like the best people to learn how to do it from are the people that do it? Yeah. And, and not to at all say that people that are, you know, in academia and doing, you know, more uh, research and under more kind of um, controlled conditions aren't doing things that are of value, but that there's been a challenge within behavior analysis because our roots are fundamentally more academic, but we have grown into a practitioner field, right? So if you look at the current statistics from the Behavior Analyst Certification Board in terms of where our behavior analysts that are currently certified, where are they working? Almost everyone is working with individuals with autism spectrum disorder or intellectual disabilities. You have some people that are working in education settings or with adults, some people, you know, in organizational behavior management, a very small sliver in gerontology, a small sliver in brain injury. And, you know, those working as behavior analysts in academia are, you know, dwarfed by practitioners. But our field has had a challenge, especially in conferences and in terms of whose voices do we elevate of how do we better integrate both of these pieces of who we are, especially looking at the practitioner piece is the primary piece. Um, and that just because you're a practitioner doesn't mean that you can't contribute to the behavior analytic research or knowledge or, or thought diversity and also just because you are in academia doesn't mean that what you have to say is more valuable. And so how, you said initially you chalked this up to to not being asked to to be um, because you were relatively newer in the field, but you felt like you had things to say and you could tell from remote supervision that you were doing that people were not accessing practitioner-based content um, in a way that would really help them be more effective. And so you're like, I decided to to do something about it. And so what did you do? Well, I started the Do Better movement. <laughs> 
So, um, you know, I, I was, I was sick of just getting like one or two people at a time with the remote supervision that I was doing. And, and I was sick of repeating myself. So I had like five or six different people and then that would kind of kept growing. So at some point there was like 10 to 20 people. And I just felt like every single time I did a supervision session, I was just repeating myself. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like there has to be a better way to do this. And if I'm not going to be invited to conferences to present and um, I'm not going to be valued because I'm not in the ivory tower of a a college or university as a PhD level practitioner, you know, doing research and presenting, then I'll just do it myself, right? Like I'll just make it happen. So Mm -hmm. I had this laundry list of webinars that I had wanted to create or submit for conference presentations. And I just, because I was providing so much like direct service and supervision and mentorship, I didn't have time to ever put them together. So at the end of 2017, I was just like, this is it. I can't do this anymore. Like I'm so like overseeing these posts on Facebook or interacting with people who are really like practicing our science without the most effective tools in their their tool belt. And I just laid out for that year what presentations I would do, what topics I would cover. And it was so necessary to like get it out there and like say it and publicly announce that that was happening because then it mm-hmm. held me to it. Okay. What did Taylor just say? He said he's going poop. <laughs> hey, this is an important biological function, Taylor. We support... <laughs> This we support you in your bowel system, my friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go ahead, buddy. <laughs> so I was able. So you spent this whole year yeah. putting all these webinars together and like yep. content, and they together. were free, and we put everything out for free. I didn't hold up to what I thought I was going to do. I thought every month I would do like a blog and some different posts and things like that. But really, people were mostly consuming the webinars, and I just I was traveling and presenting for um, peak ABA solutions at the time. So I didn't get to do as much of it as I wanted. And I was like, well, at least this will hold me accountable on getting these webinars out there. So I got those created. And, um, and so they're, they've been available for, I guess it's, that was 2018. So three years, depending on when, Mm -hmm. and we've had, you know, thousands of views or purchases or things like that on those webinars. And then I've just carried it over. So in 2019, I invited people to present that, that were not me and that, but I had seen, you know, just the work they were doing and I wanted to highlight, sure, they might not, again, be in, be invited to present at conferences either, but they were doing really amazing work and we needed to learn from them. And then for 2020, mm-hmm. I had people sign up and thankfully you signed up for one and then ended up doing a million other things mm-hmm. with us. Um, and then for 2021, mm-hmm. we created the Do Better Collective. So we have, it's a membership yeah. community now, like you mentioned at the beginning, and it's kind of a mixture. I'm mm-hmm. still doing some presentations. And then we have people that we've invited to present as well again, but it's all focused on mostly highlighting practitioners who are creating Mm -hmm. advancements in our field and really improving ethical and humane service delivery, whether it's specific to the client or helping from more of like an OBM business side of things for people to practice and not burn out and things like that. Um, just trying to to cover those mm-hmm. areas. I, I know it's going to sound really bad, but when I go to con- like academic conferences, I'm usually bored out of my mind. And I walk away like mm-hmm. I could have read that research article. Like I didn't need to sit through this presentation and have you tell it to me. So we try to focus on things that like you can take with you and actually apply in your practice um, mm-hmm. and instead of 
just sort of reiterating some type of research article that's out there that anyone could read and apply on their own. You mean like when you go to a conference and someone basically just reads word for word yeah. their PowerPoint? And I'm like, baby, you could have just like emailed that to all of us and then we could have been at the bar <laughs> yeah. having a drink together, learning about something else. Yeah. But so let me, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to take devil's advocate position right now. So you're saying that, hey, you feel like there's in the the industry of behavior analysis that a lot of times the practitioner voice has not been as valued as the academic voice. Um, well, who are you to think that you represent practitioners? Like, why should someone listen to you and pay attention to anything that you're doing? <laughs> I mean, they don't have to. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've got a pretty good uh, resume of effectiveness with my learners <laughs> and typically – the things that we present are, um, we get feedback that it's effective and we have the data. Like I personally, as a practitioner can show data to say like, this is what we did and this is how it worked. And then mm -hmm. of course the people that are consuming the courses and whatnot, it's the same kind of thing. And I'd also reverse that to who are the researchers to say they know anything either because they do research in isolated settings that aren't the real world. So just because they achieved what they achieved in their little laboratory doesn't necessarily mean it's going to carry over to a house or a well, clinic. And, <laughs> right. And that's, you know, and that's where I think that there's a, that's where I'm hoping that we can potentially look at better convergence of, you know, more academic research and practitioner research, because why do we have so many, um, different types of programs um, and behavior analytic, you know, strategies that we use that were born out of academic research, because this research can be done in a highly controlled setting. You can control for a lot of different variables. So you can have um, better data and, you know, can achieve potentially more statistically significant data because you can account for so many of, of the different variables. Uh, and what has been, I think, harder for practitioner research is because you're often in school settings or in people's homes, there's a lot of uh, additional considerations that make it harder to say like, how can I like really tell like what I did um, and the results that I achieved were because of exactly what I did. But looking, you know, where I think our field needs to go more is then how can we create more partnership and collaboration within these, you know, academic institutions and practitioners to then say, like, how do we kind of like translate this into like the applied piece, right? I mean, and that's, you know, people think of ABA, I mean, the first A is applied, applied behavior analysis. And so how can we look for more opportunities to say like, hey, you know, grad, you know, lab or whatever you guys are doing. I love this, you know, single subject research that you're doing or this, you know, ABAB design that you have running with 15 kids. How do we look at partnering with people within the practitioner field to uh, do replications and direct replications to see, can we get, you know, similar effects in, you know, in a setting like a community-based setting or in a school-based setting or in a home when we can't necessarily control for everything going on in the environment. And there's definitely, I mean, our field has, you know, mostly been, you know, predicated on like kind of single subject research design. That's our big thing. And there's a lot of controversy within, you know, single subject research design, like, hey, if it's not a big end, does it count? And, and I would say that we've been able to show that there is value in single subject research. But if we want to continue to kind of look at how we can approach, you know, problems and do it more at scale. It's going to need to involve, you know, greater amounts of, of people. And obviously, of course, like my big thing is like, this is going to need to involve pushing out of necessarily just focusing on autism, even though, you know, I think we've done a really good job of that, but I'm hoping, 
I hear your frustrations. I've had them too. And I think similarly kind of figuring out like, Hey, if there's not going to be a path that's created for me, but I, you know, fundamentally believe I have value. I can, I believe that I can prove the the value that I have. I believe that the voice I I have is important. Then I'm going to kind of carve my own path. I've done something similar in that I'm, I'm not a PhD, you know, but I've still had leadership positions that have traditionally been reserved for people with a PhD. And, you know, I've been a practitioner or business owner, you know, my entire career. And so that's something I, you know, believe in so passionately and, and deeply about. I want to pivot a little bit and we haven't talked about this, so I'm springing this on you, but I'm hoping you're game for this. I want to talk about 2020 and I want to talk about especially how you feel like you have changed as a person in relation to a lot of the social justice issues that we've been talking about, obviously within you know, American culture, definitely within behavior analysis as a result of, you know, George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder. And I think this realization that really happened last June where people were just like, people were home. Um, They had, you know, it was easier to attend to something because there weren't as many competing things and contingencies for our attention because people were, you know, kind of working from home. We're in COVID and just this I think for many people, this new recognition, and I think especially, frankly, for many white people, um, this is not new for, you know, people that are, are, are persons of color. This is their lives. But I think for a lot of white people, this like, holy shit, I never realized it was this bad. And I am really angry and deeply, deeply disturbed and deeply, deeply sad. And I feel because I watched you, um, this is something that really impacted you and do you mind kind of talking about it and how you've really kind of pivoted some of, of your work in response to this? Sure. So yeah, 2020 was definitely interesting year for a lot of reasons, but I think for me, it, there was definitely a pivot that happened and it was bubbling for a while. So even an undergrad, I did AmeriCorps and I worked and volunteered in a school near me that was underserved and had less resources providing math and science tutoring. And I was just really frustrated and saddened by the differences like that at that school, these students had nothing. And then like a mile down the road, every student had a freaking laptop kind of thing, right? The injustices that existed and still exist between um, students, mostly of color and, you know, based on property taxes and the way our school systems are set up and all those kinds of things. And then even, you know, in grad school at Ohio State, it was a similar situation in the classes that we took and the schools that we provided services, like all of the schools that welcomed us in to provide teacher coaching or conduct our research were under-resourced. And it was almost like a convenience, you know, they were desperate. So they would let us in to do anything. Thankfully, Ohio Mm -hmm. State was pretty responsible about all of that and made sure like what they were doing was sustainable and really benefiting the students, but easily could not have been that way. So I I experienced a lot of um, thoughts, if you will, and no action, right? Like recognizing that there were issues. So I wasn't, for me in 2020, it wasn't that I was as shocked about like, oh, the, the, the school to prison pipeline and the injustices that exist in our school system. I was well aware of those things. What I was shocked by was the experiences, especially of my friends, my black women friends, my 
my biracial cousin that like I didn't even realize that on a day-to-day what they were experiencing. Like just to mm-hmm. to know that I, I felt close to these people and like had no idea what their day-to-day life was like until there was more of a, a I guess, a sense of being able to share those things publicly, um, especially mm-hmm. on Facebook and things. And you saw people start to share their stories of like, this is what my life is like. And it was like, the hell? <laughs> How have I yeah. known you for this long and did not know that this was what your life was like? Um, so I was more shocked by those things and then guilty, of course, that like I knew of the injustices that existed and exist in our society and never really took more action than just reading the books and being like, this is ridiculous, you know, <laughs> like not doing anything about it. Um, so for for the last year, I mean, it's not even been a year at this point, but for the last like nine months, I guess. We've done, I personally, and then just as a focus within the collective, we've been trying to do a lot more work on not just the initial call, you know, listen and learn and take in the things, but now like what action can we be taking to be anti-racist and to disrupt these systems? And it also goes beyond, it. you know, I don't know, I might get some crap for saying this, but it's not just racism, right? Like it's sexism, it's ableism, like it's all the isms. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we need to be really looking at what actions we're taking on a day to day. We have a unique opportunity, especially as behavior analysts and how we understand the role of environment in creating these systems and continuing to perpetuate them, that we can be a big force in stepping away from this stuff because we can pinpoint it so easily and be like, nope, Mm -hmm. not doing that anymore. Right. Well, and also, I mean, not only can we pinpoint it, we can, you know, tackle it with precision. Right. Like what are, you know, what is, what is reinforcing this? What is it? What is the function of, of this? How do we, you know, create something to, you know, create a motivating operation for someone to do, you know, something else and provide reinforcement for that so we can have that habituated and create, you know, this positive behavior change. What, what do you wish, what do you wish that our field was doing right now that, that they aren't? Um, and maybe it's hard to pinpoint just kind of one thing, but if you had like a, a wish, like the one thing that you wish, like all behavior analysts might consider doing that they may not be considering right now, what would it be? In relation to social justice or broadly speaking? Broadly speaking. Okay. Cause it all kind of ties together, but I just wanted to make sure. Girl, I know that's why I'm asking the question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, broadly speaking, it would be that behavior analysts would be more humble and flexible. Right. So being humble and like understanding that like not everyone has the same worldview as we do, but our science is so powerful and we should be able to connect with people first instead of trying to force our science down their throats. Um, So that would be Mm -hmm. like the humble part. And then the flexible would be figuring out again with these connections, how do we, you know, with what we know about our science and the pinpointing and the precision that we can have. How do we flexibly work with people who have different understandings of the world or have their own biases and their own learning histories, um, make things shift in a way that benefits society at large? Um, And I think Mm -hmm. the humble and flexible piece also comes in with our own biases, like I mentioned, where when people are trying to point out that these various systems exist, like racism or sexism or ableism or any of the other isms, Mm-hmm. Not being defensive about it, be, being able to be humble and just, you know, oh, what can I learn from this? There's always a gift. There is a gift in every single interaction yeah. we have with anyone. 
And instead of taking like an ego route and being like, well, I know this thing to be true and I'm going to show you how much better I am than you or how much my science can help you or whatever, looking for that gift and figuring out, you know, what is it that I'm supposed to learn from this interaction? And then how can I, again, flexibly use that information to not only improve our science, but society as a whole? Well, it's the whole idea of fundamentally, and I talk about this a lot, of being curious. And that is a more scientific perspective of understanding that in light of new information and data, that our views and beliefs are need to shift. And we're con- getting constantly wait, wait, getting- wait, wait, are you saying we need to have philosophical doubt? <laughs> philosophical doubt. I know, philosophical doubt. Um, and that applies to the beliefs, you know, that we have, you know, our own beliefs and the beliefs of of others. And like you're saying, having this like contextual view of of people um, and understanding all of us, the 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 you that you're presenting right now, the me, Sarah, that I'm presenting right now are products of our very um, you know, complex learning and reinforcement histories. And, you know, I think fundamentally being able to see people as as human in that most of the time, I think people want to do good stuff. And especially in behavior analysis, it's like our science is based on wanting to help alleviate human suffering, wanting to help focus on behaviors of social significance that allow the individual to be a more connected, reinforcing part of, of their community. And in order to do that, that we have, we have to find like our soft, squishy pieces, right? The, and that's where the humble comes in. That's where the flexible comes in. Having the, the philosophical doubt, understanding, you know, and there's even like data and research to support this, that shoving like information and telling people how wrong they are is not the way to get them to lean into you. Yep. It's how do you find those middle grounds? Um, and so the kind of the last piece I wanted to talk to you about in terms of, you know, this, you know, quest for finding your voice, I think you and I are similar in the way that we are often willing to use our voice, even when sometimes that voice might be unpopular. What do you do or what are the what are the self-care, you know, kind of skills that you have had to establish for yourself as it relates to being someone that that has a voice and isn't afraid to express their voice, but also comes into contact with a lot of feedback about your voice. And sometimes it's positive and most of the time it is. And honestly, sometimes it isn't. So how how do you take care of yourself in the midst of that? That is a wonderful question. So I, a few years ago, even, and this wasn't about me having a voice or not having a voice, just interactions, um, especially on social media, I started to learn to not be defensive, right? Like Mm -hmm. whatever people are coming with their comments or whatever, it's not about me. (laughs) Like they're saying the things like it's a you, it's a you thing, you know, um, especially if it's like a really negative and harsh comment, that's probably more of like a, a, a problem for themselves than it is for me. So I think having that um, sort of framing of things helped a lot when when I have been more vocal about stuff and I get feedback. But then more recently, I've um, been focusing on it more as just growth. So I did mm-hmm. a Facebook Live recently on this as well, but basically – there, to me, it's no longer about division. Like if people don't agree with me, whatever, but I'm in a growth space. So it's if, if mm-hmm. they're trying to create like an us versus them or any sort of like divisive thing or give me feedback that like what I'm doing isn't what they would do or that, that I should do it differently, I don't even look at it as a disagreement anymore. It's more about I'm growing <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm focused on my growth and doing the things that will grow 
um, both myself and like the, the people that I'm helping, you know, with the collective. And as long as I know that I'm operating from a place that values creating compassionate, humane and ethical service delivery, that's all that matters. So they can create whatever narratives they want. They can try to make things as divisive as they want, but I'm in a growth place and that's what that is. So, mm-hmm. um, and it can be uncomfortable. Growing's uncomfortable. So it is. And it can, you know, sometimes, yeah, be really painful. But I would say from my own experiences, the places when I've grown the most in my life have been the hardest. And perhaps sometimes I wish there were a softer landing for some things. I don't know if you feel the same way. I'm like, did it really need to like leave that much of a scar? Yeah. Like maybe just like a light bruise would have been just fine to get your point across. But that hasn't been how I've learned the best. And so I have honestly grown the most when I've done like the worst stuff and had the harshest feedback and have them, you know, most challenging experiences. And and that's really kind of where you stretch. It's like when you've made the mistakes, when you've had the hard talks, when you've maybe, you know, lost relationships or, or, you know, kind of whatever. Um, one thing I want to mention to everybody and then this, I could not be more excited about Megan is like, you and I have never been together in real life. We've I'm had so spent excited. so much time with each other. And we're both going to be like, vaccinated and I can actually like high five you I or hug, hug you or whatever yeah. we want to so, do. For our OHEYBCBA virtual conference on April 23rd, a number of our speakers are flying into Phoenix and we are going to be presenting together. So you'll be here. I'll be here. Cammy Morgan's going to come in. Daniel Beale's going to come in. Dr. Marley Bellis is coming in. And we could just like not be more thrilled because um, honestly, I'm hoping – I'm so excited for this virtual conference but I'm very much like an IRL person. I love the energy of people. I love to hug everybody. I love to see everybody. And this to me is like my final goodbye to an all virtual conference because I think the future of conferences honestly are going to be hybrid. Um, I think that's here to stay and I'm fine with that. But I just want to have that in real life option. And so this is like my last like hurrah (laughs) on the only IRL. But I was like, y'all, if we're going to do this, can since we're all vaccinated – can we be at least together in community presenting? And so I could not be more excited to be able to like see you and present with you on April 23rd. And so I'll make sure I'll put in the show notes for today's episode, Megan, the Do Better Collective. So if people have you know questions or are interested, they can look at it. I'll put um, in the show notes the registration link if people are interested in attending OHEY BCBAs on April 23rd. We have you know um, reduced pricing for people that are part of the uh, Trailblazer members in the Do Better Collective and also for Defy members. We also have student pricing, so we don't want this to be a barrier. If you guys are student, you want to learn, we're making this super um, cost-effective for you. What are we charging, Megan? Like 75 bucks for students? Yeah, to something the around there the whole day? in the 70s. Yeah. I can't remember the exact yeah. price point. Yeah, so we'll... We'll put that all in there. Um, but I'm really – I appreciate you coming on. I know that I'm interrupting, you know, Taylor's spring break. <laughs> and he wants to get back to like Titanic pizza. He's building a fort right now. It's been oh. – yeah. Okay. It's well, because – so then we need to let you go so you guys <laughs> can can hang together. But I, I thank you for coming on and I appreciate you being uh, the last guest of season one of Defy. Well, and I appreciate you, Sarah, and all that you're doing and and the rest of the Defy community. This has been such an amazing interview, but also just listening to the podcast episodes are, um, it's so wonderful to get to know each of the different people that you're interviewing and hear their stories. And I feel like even if I haven't had an experience similar to each person, I can always find something to connect over. And it's like, 
some mm -hmm. some good nugget of you know life advice in every episode so yeah but that's the thing right like no matter how different we are we're all still humans and we're all having a human experience and that fundamentally knits us together it does yes and so if we can just knit us together a little harder um and have each other's backs a little more i think that that's a real nice foundation to build a better future Thanks for listening to Defy. We really appreciate your support. And we hope that you listen to all of the different podcasts that we put together. And guess what? We're available on all of the podcast platforms and on social media too. And we even have a website. Like seriously, we have all of that stuff. You can find us at www.defy.community. You can find us on Instagram at defy.comm, on Facebook using the same defy.comm, or you can even send me an email if you just want to chat about something or if you have an idea of a podcast that you think would be really great for our community. Our email is contact at defy.community. We hope that you have found something that you can take away from this podcast that will impact your life. We hope that you continue to defy society's expectations of you. Because remember, baby, well-behaved women rarely make history. Da -da -da.